I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. My guest today is Tony Adamus. When VEGF was first discovered, we thought, okay, it does just two things. It makes vessels grow, and it makes them leak. A lot of VEGF is bad, little VEGF is good. That paradigm is no longer true. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Tony Adamus declares salary, intellectual property rights, consulting, and equity ownership. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Angiogenesis is, arguably, the most important subject in all of medicine today. The ability to mediate vessel growth will revolutionize the treatment of macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy, to say nothing of cancer and ischemic heart disease. Understanding the exploding body of literature on angiogenesis is important, but difficult because its jargon is unfamiliar. No one is in a better position to give us an angiogenesis primer than my guest today, Tony Adamus. Having worked with Judah Folkman and at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary for many years, Tony is now Executive Vice President for Research and Development and Chief Scientific Officer at iTech Pharmaceuticals. I spoke with him at the iTech headquarters in New York City. Tony, can you tell me what vascular permeability factor is? Vascular permeability factor is the first name that was given the VEGF, actually. It was coined by a fellow named Harold Dvorak, who in 1983 published a paper in Science, where he partially purified from uh, guinea pig ascites this factor that made blood vessels leak, and hence the name vascular permeability factor. And he learned that on a molar basis, it was probably the most potent permeability factor known to man. If, for instance, 50,000 times more potent than histamine. It was then sort of rediscovered in 1989 when Napoleon Ferrara at Genentech and another fellow, Dan Connolly, independently of Monsanto, cloned a molecule that made blood vessels grow and leak. And when they compared the sequence of what they had cloned, the protein sequence, to what Harold Dvorak had described, they found out it was the same thing. So they christened it vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, uh, because of its ability to make blood vessels grow, and it was uh, pro- it made endothelial cells proliferate. But uh, And that's the name that really stuck. But it has those two important biological activities. It makes vessels leak and it makes them grow. And therefore, we thought it was probably important in ophthalmology and diseases that we see in, in ophthalmology. Tony, what we're going to be talking about mostly, obviously, is the the vascular growth side of VEGF. But before we discuss that, can I have you describe what the steps are when neovascularization forms, what the steps are physiologically in the production of a new vessel? So there are certain um, well-established steps in the growth of a new vessel. So I'm going to speak about angiogenesis. There are different ways you can form vessels. There's vascular genesis, where they form de novo. 
And then there's angiogenesis, which is where they sprout from a pre-existing vessel. The latter is what occurs in disease. So the well-established steps are that, number one, you break down the parent vessel. And you have to do that in a way that doesn't lead to a massive hemorrhage. Now, it is oftentimes associated with small hemorrhages when you have angiogenesis. So if you think about tumor angiogenesis, one of the cardinal signs of a tumor is bleeding. If you have a lung cancer, you have hemoptysis. If you have a colon cancer, you'll have blood in your stool, so on and so forth. So angiogenesis begins with the breakdown of a parent vessel that usually involves a digestion of the basement membrane. And then there's the migration and the proliferation of the endothelial cells that form the lining of blood vessels. Uh, those cells then coalesce and create a lumen, um, and then ultimately the various sprouts will connect, and the guidance factors for their connecting and then establishing a circulation remain unknown, but that's the final step. And then you have a patent new vessel. What's the role that VEGF plays in these steps? How does VEGF mediate the breakdown of the basement membrane that's the first step in this algorithm? So VEGF can actually contribute to many of these steps. Uh, it's a potent migration factor. It's a potent uh, mitogen, so it makes the endothelial cells proliferate and migrate. It can trigger the secretion of enzymes that lead to the digestion of the basement membrane, the question you asked. Um, it actually seems to be, uh, if not directly responsible, and, and it's a direct mitogen and migration factor, at least indirectly responsible as well, because when you put VEGF into a system, either exogenous VEGF or you overexpress it genetically, it seems to be sufficient for all of these steps. So it'll either trigger the steps themselves or it'll trigger other molecules that will cause those steps to occur. Tony, there, there are several VEGFs, and one of them, which I assume that we're going to be talking about mostly here, VEGF A, has, has itself got several isoforms. These different isoforms are conserved throughout evolution. So that suggests that they're important. Uh, if nature conserves something, it's usually for a reason. They have different functions biochemically, and that was the first discovery that was determined about these different isoforms. Uh, the smaller ones, and these are all alternate transcripts of the same gene. So there's one VEGF gene, but it codes for multiple different RNAs, which are translated into multiple different VEGF proteins or the isoforms. The smaller VEGFs, so for example, VEGF 121, which means it has 121 amino acids, mm -hmm. doesn't bind to heparin. The smaller one doesn't bind to heparin-like molecules. So that means it tends to be freely diffusible because heparin-like molecules are present on the cell membrane or in basement membranes. The larger VEGFs, like VEGF 189 and VEGF 206, which has 206 amino acids, they bind increasingly with higher affinity as they get bigger to heparin-like molecules. So that means when they're made by the cell and they're secreted and all of them are secreted, it doesn't go very far from the cell producing it. It either sticks on the surface of that cell and its membrane or it sticks to the basement membrane upon which that cell is seated or uh, is attached to. And so they differ biochemically. How do they differ biologically? That sort of became clear in the last five years, where genetic studies, um, specifically mice, were created that expressed only one isoform of VEGF, and they looked to see what happened. And what we learned is these VEGFs are very important in the patterning of the vasculature. Uh, for instance, if you express only VEGF120, 120, which is the mouse equivalent of the human 121, 
That small VEGF, first of all, is lethal. Those animals die in utero or will live at best one or two days uh, uh, post-birth. They have a deficiency in branching, and so they are um, uh, vessels that are very long with very few branches and tend to be narrower in their caliber. Conversely, animals that have VEGF only VEGF 188, those animals have hyperbranching. So they have too many branches, and they tend to make uh, vessels with bigger lumens. And so the isoforms have a role in the patterning and in the size of the microvasculature. Another thing that's been discovered is um, that certain VEGFs are pro-inflammatory, much more so than others. And so, for example, VEGF-165, which is intermediate in its heparin binding, seems to be a much more potent inflammatory, pro-inflammatory molecule. So it draws in macrophages and monocytes. And it turns out that those inflammatory cells sort of accelerate and add to the inflammatory pro- I mean to the angiogenic process. If you subtract out inflammatory cells from a pathological angiogenesis, you actually can cut the amount of angiogenesis in half. So the inflammatory cells play a key role, and different isoforms have varying potencies for um, bringing in these inflammatory cells. So that's what we know to date about these different isoforms, and I'm sure we'll discover more in the future. But that's how nature has taken a single protein, uh, VEGF I'm talking about, or a single gene that codes for different proteins. And we've learned it does many, many different things. And now the isoforms we realize are a key in part to how these different bioactivities occur. Some isoforms are more important for some, others for other bioactivities. What I'd like to do, you've given us a lot of um, a lot of info here, is parse some some of it out just for for people who let's say want to do further reading later on. One of the things is is that the nomenclature for although as you as you as you mentioned, VEGF is uh, something that is very conserved. Um, that the nomenclature for human VEGF and for mouse VEGF is different, and it's different by exactly one, that, that the, well, well, why don't I have you say it? It's right? exactly that. So the rodent VEGF, um, the different isoforms have one fewer amino acids, which functionally doesn't seem to be relevant at all. They behave biologically identically. So VEGF120 in the mouse and VEGF121 in the human, for all intents and purposes, have the exact same bioactivities. What I'd like to touch back on now is what we feel the importance is of heparin binding. And uh, one of the uh, things that's been that's been mentioned is is that that the VEGFs that are heparin bound act as a sort of a of a local depot and you you made reference in one of your papers to the analogy between VEGF that is heparin bound and what happens during clotting right uh, and, and I'm wondering if I can get you to explain that um, that very interesting so that, that that bound VEGF is sitting in the basement membrane Um, let's say, and then we talked a moment ago about one of the steps of angiogenesis. One of the steps is break down a basement membrane. Well, those same um, enzymes can actually clip VEGF and, and release it in a bioactive form from the basement membrane. And so basically what you have is pre-made VEGF 
you don't have the lag, the time required to transcribe the VEGF gene and then translate it and to get that VEGF secreted. If you need it very rapidly, it's instantly available to you because basically you, you, you clip it and you free it up from the basement membrane. So what, what you've got is a reserve of VEGF that you don't have to synthesize. Um, that is that is present and available if it's needed. And that's what I meant when I made the analogy to the clotting cascade. The clotting factors are made in a round. They right. just get activated. In addition to the isoforms of VEGF-A, there are several receptors for VEGF. Right. Whereas VEGF, we feel, can be produced by a, by a range of... Well, what, what are the cells that can produce VEGF? The, so the, the ones that receive VEGF are few but growing in numbers. So first, it was learned that the VEGF receptors, it was thought, are exclusively present on endothelial cells. And the VEGF-producing cells are pretty much everything except endothelial cells. So this is a pure paracrine system. You have non-endothelial cells making it and endothelial cells responding. We've since learned there are other cell types that make VEGF receptors and then respond to VEGF. I alluded to a moment ago that VEGF-165 is pro-inflammatory. That's a direct effect. Inflammatory cells have uh, VEGF receptors specifically VEGF receptor 1. So there are other cell types that make VEGF receptors. It's not just endothelial cells. There are three major VEGF receptors. VEGF receptor 1, VEGF receptor 2, and neuropillin. VEGF receptor 1 is also known as FLT1. Um, It was first described and named that in the literature. And VEGF receptor 2, you'll also see in the literature, is uh, also called KDR. And neuropillin uh, was originally thought to be only present in neural tissues. We now know is also present on endothelial cells and binds VEGF. So those are the three main players. Their distribution varies and their activities vary. VEGF receptor 2, or KDR, is the one that seems to be very important on the endothelium. It's the one that actively signals for endothelial cell proliferation and migration. VEGF receptor 1 is also on endothelial cells, but does not, is not active. Basically, you have the extracellular receptor, uh, but once VEGF binds to it, it doesn't signal anything internally. And a number of uh, genetic experiments have determined that that's, that receptor is basically a VEGF sink, but if, if it fulfills a very important role in that if you get rid of that VEGF sink, it's actually lethal. And it may be it's a way to very finely titrate VEGF levels. Another thing that suggests that the amount of VEGF that you have in the system is critically important and going up a little higher or a little lower can lead to pathology is the fact that we know that VEGF um, is heterozygous lethal. Namely, mice were created that had one of the two VEGF alleles deleted, so they were making 50% less VEGF. That led to a lethal disruption of the vasculature during development. So just having a little less VEGF is lethal. And conversely, other experiments have been done where VEGF is overexpressed during development. That too is lethal. So you need just the right amount of VEGF. Um, and so this VEGF receptor 1 that's present on all endothelium may help serve that function, even though it's not an active receptor. Now, that VEGF receptor 1 receptor is active on inflammatory cells. 
and seems to be the one that signals for the migration of cells towards the source of VEGF. So you can see that these different VEGF receptors have different functions on different cell types and mediate different actions or express on different cell types and mediate different actions on those cell types. And then lastly, neuropelin is the most recently discovered one. As I said, it was thought to be involved just in neural tissue alone, but now we know is also present on the endothelium. Seems to be facilitating the binding of VEGF to the VEGF2 receptor. So it's a facilitator, and it actually spatially works uh, together with KDR VEGF receptor 2 to uh, bind to VEGF more avidly. So that's what we know about the functions. Um, and so a lot of this complexity that we see now regarding VEGF, when VEGF was first discovered, we thought, okay, it does just two things. It makes vessels grow, and it makes them leak. A lot of VEGF is bad, little VEGF is good. Um, that paradigm is no longer true. We now know that VEGF does many things. VEGF is pro-inflammatory, as I said. It can stimulate or, or it can push uh, vessels to develop into arteries versus becoming veins. It's pro-inflammatory, as we said a moment ago. It's a survival factor, meaning its withdrawal will lead to the death of, of, of uh, microvasculature. It triggers the formation of fenestrae in certain endothelial cells. It's neuroprotective is a new, a new line of information that we have. All these different things that VEGF does, how can it do it? How can one protein? really do all these things. Well, we now know it's not one protein, right? It's a fam it's a it's a group of isoforms which have different functions as we spoke about a, a little bit ago. And then you have these different receptors. So it's the mixing and matching of these isoforms and the receptors and then their respective expression in the different cell types that I think you now start to confer the specificity that we see and uh, in, in, in can um, uh, mediate the various biological activities that we see for these different VEGFs. There are many forms of VEGF and that VEGF has many properties, but I just want to stress that if I were to ask you, well, let, let me ask you, aside from the VEGF family, are there any other angiogenic factors? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. go on, please. Let, so, let's, let's, VEGF let's doesn't do everything. So, for instance, another very important molecule, one that we're looking at actively, is PDGF. Mm -hmm. So vessels are more than just endothelial cells. PDGF being platelet-derived derived growth, growth factor. factor. Yeah. And specifically the B, the mm -hmm. B form of that, there's, there, there's an A and a B form. That growth factor seems to be critically important in the recruitment and the association of smooth muscle cells or in the retina pericytes with uh, the growing nascent vasculature. And so vessels are composed of more than just endothelial cells, as we know. They're surrounded by these these pericytes and smooth muscles. And, ved and PDGF appears to be absolutely critical for that step to occur. So there are other angiogenic factors. Some of the other angiogenic factors that have been discovered, FGF, for instance, uh, FGFB, uh, seem to work in part through VEGF. So VEGF seems to be critically important, but it is not in and of itself the only factor. I mean, if you think of the complexity of a vessel and all the steps that are involved in the growth of a vessel, and we went through some of them, and that's only a subset of them, there have to be there has to be an orchestration of multiple factors that bring these uh, the, 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 that allow and facilitate and, and direct the growth of these new capillaries. We are going to get back to the pericyte issue later on when we talk about VEGF treatment. But uh, just to complete our cast of characters, can I have you tell us what angiopoietin is? 
So angiopoietin is a molecule that uh, seems to be made in smooth muscle cells and acts on the endothelium. And it has a number of interesting functions. First of all, there's two angiopotents. There's ang1, that's a shorthand that we all use, and ang2. Both bind to the same receptor, to the TIE2 receptor. Um, ang1 seems to be a vessel maturation factor. It seems to, for instance, take an immature leaky vessel and make it stop leaking. And we've published it in models of diabetic retinopathy where there are leaky vessels with lots of inflammatory cells that the introduction of ANG1 into that system will stop the leak, uh, get rid of the inflammatory cells, and basically take those vessels to normal, mature, uh, physiologically functioning vessels. ANG2, on the other hand, is is thought to be uh, pro-inflammatory. In, when it's overexpressed, uh, in the absence of ANG1 and in the absence of VEGF, uh, its thought can lead to the disintegration of vessels. And so ANG2 is thought to lead to the dissociation of a pericyte with the endothelium. And with the, with, in the absence of VEGF, that leads to the death of the endothelial cell because VEGF is functioning at that time as a vessel survival factor. Conversely, if ANG2 is overexpressed and VEGF are overexpressed, the dissociation of the pericyte caused by ANG2 and the overexpression of VEGF leads to the proliferation of new vessels. And so this is a working hypothesis put forward by Doug Hanahan. And to date, the data seem to suggest that it may be operative, actually, in, in, in real life. The isoforms of VEGF that we've been talking about here are all VEGF-A, but there are other VEGFs. Yes. So there's VEGF-B, VEGF-C, VEGF-D. Not a lot known about what VEGF-B does. There's also a PLGF, a placental growth factor, which is also also part of this VEGF family. Uh, Placental growth factor seems to play a role in angiogenesis, but that's still being defined exactly how it works. The real interesting thing is with this larger VEGF family is VEGF-C and D. Uh, it first came out of Kari Alitalo's lab, but uh, subsequent work by many labs, including Reza Dana back at Harvard, have shown that those those VEGF uh, family members are lymphangiogenic factors. So they're critical to the formation of the lymphatic circulation and function in much the same way VEGF-A works on, on the endothelial side of the vasculature. And so um, that's an exciting role. Uh, there, there's there's coming to be an understanding of how these different family members interact to form uh, both the, the blood circulation and then the lymphatic circulation. Now, Tony, I'm going to ask a very simple question here. What evidence do we have that VEGF plays a role in neovascularization of the eye? The short answer is in any tissue of the eye uh, where it's been looked at, and I'm talking about cornea, iris, retina, and choroid, where vessels grow in disease, um, it seems to be both necessary and sufficient, meaning if you block it, you block the uh, vessel growth and leakage. If you overexpress it or if you inject it into those tissues, it's sufficient to make vessels grow and leak. And then uh, that's in animals. And then if you look at human tissue specimens, so patients with actual growing vessels in corneal, iris, retinal, and choroidal diseases, VEGF's overexpressed and its receptors. So that large body of data, that's about 15 years worth of work uh, from 
many labs around the world, uh, the story is very consistent. In fact, you're hard-pressed to find, and if you do a PubMed search, there's over 15,000 papers on VEGF. You're hard-pressed to find a paper that sort of disagrees with that paradigm. Um, It seems to be critically important. Have there been studies in which, let's say, a, a rodent's been taken and VEGF has been injected in the vitreous? Yeah, and so that we've done that, and that'll make uh, vessels leak. That pulls in inflammatory cells. Uh, in the monkey, we've done it. In uh, it's hard to make vessels grow in the retinal, in the retina of the rodent. But if you do that in a monkey, so injections of VEGF into the vitreous of the monkey is sufficient to make vessels, retinal vessels grow. You get a proliferative retinopathy-like picture. That being said, just to make things a little more complex, the normal eye in a normal retina makes VEGF. And so you have to ask, what's it doing there? And so there are data to suggest now that there is a physiological role in the eye. It functions as a neural protectant, so if you knock it out, you actually make uh, neural cells die. Uh, it's uh, necessary for the fenestration of the choriocapillaris. And actually, it's necessary for the survival of the choriocapillaris. So getting rid of all VEGF is probably a bad thing. It also has a normal function, too, which makes it a little more complex when we go into the clinical side here of how to treat these uh, VEGF-driven diseases. If we were able to block the effect of VEGF, does it matter whether the neovascularization that we're trying to treat is new or whether, it, it, whether it's been there for a while, specifically whether there are pericytes present. Yeah. Um, new vessels are more responsive to VEGF inhibition than old established vessels. Um, and we've done work in the laboratory sort of directly demonstrating that. It's unpublished, but we've talked about it at, at meetings. So definitely, uh, as a vessel just starts to grow, and we, we've also followed VEGF expression. VEGF levels are at their highest just as a vessel grows, and then they fall off as a vessel becomes established. So that's when they're most susceptible. Has there been work done in which factors have been employed, like ANG2, to separate pericytes and then subsequently treat the vasculature with VEGF-blocking agents? Yeah, well, we've done those experiments. I mean, meaning to to sort of demature, demature the vessel, the vessels first. Yeah, yeah. we we did some experiments uh, in models of corneal neovascularization, and what we found was ANG two was not that effective at stripping away pericytes, and actually PDGF inhibition is much more effective. Uh, PDGF inhibition can effectively strip away pericytes, even from some fairly mature vessels. But it won't strip them away from vessels that have been around for a very long time. I, I can't tell you exactly when a vessel becomes refractory. I'll tell you the exact experiment we did. So we triggered corneal neovascularization. Going out to 40 days after those vessels have grown, PDGF inhibition will strip away the pericytes of the new vessels. But the limbal vessels, which are just, you know, microns away, don't stri- the pericytes aren't stripped away. And I can't tell you why. Why it is those new vessels are selectively uh, sensitive to PDGF inhibition, but they are, at least going out 40 days. So there we can strip away the pericytes, and then you come in with a VEGF inhibitor, and then it's much more effective. That VEGF inhibitor will actually make those vessels regress, whereas before, if you just treated with VEGF monotherapy, it wouldn't touch them. wouldn't touch them. Just grossly, how does VEGF therapy work? So VEGF therapy, uh, there are different approaches. And there are many, many companies with their VEGF inhibitors. Uh, the two that are approved are Bevacizumab, also known as Avastin for cancer, 
And then there's pegaptinib, also known as macugen for macular generation. They work by binding to VEGF in the extracellular space. So once VEGF has been secreted, they bind to VEGF and then prevent VEGF from binding to its cognate receptors. But there are many other approaches that are being tested. Both of these approaches are antibody-based, sort of. One of them is is an is an antibody. Is that right? Correct. So that is, uh, you know, uh, bevacizumab or Avastin is an antibody that binds to all VEGF-A isoforms. Now it, it's a, it's an antibody, but it's a humanized antibody. Correct. What it does was, that mean, Tony? So that means uh, it was first formed in a mouse. The antibodies. It was a mouse that was immunized and formed an antibody. Um, that had mouse sequence. Obviously, it was made in a mouse. If you take that mouse antibody we learned in the early 90s and inject that into humans, it may bind VEGF because it was immunized against human VEGF, but it also will be recognized as foreign by the human immune system. And so you will make anti-antibody antibodies. And that will, over time, A, cause inflammation, and two, uh, inactivate your antibody. Because the business end of the antibody that binds to VEGF may well be bound by this um, anti-antibody antibody. For you know those of us who've been out of medical school for a little while, the antibodies themselves have sort of two ends: have an FC end and an FAB end. And the FAB end is the one that's specific to antigen, and the FC end uh, is involved in the recruitment. Uh, and 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 signaling of cells that are involved in the the immune process or complement process Correct. or Correct. whatever is going on. But w- with with both of the approved medications, the only region of the antibody that's really of interest to us is the FAB end, because we're not interested in a cellular mediated. Treatment. What we're interested in in doing is physically blocking re, 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 um, receptors. But then you have to ask why they keep the FC region, and the reason they do that is for uh, systemic treatment, like uh, uh, bevacizumab. They uh, uh, want it to hang around in the circulation as long as possible, and, and by having the FC portion on there, you have a half life in blood of two weeks, and so that's why cancer patients are getting every two week infusions. So anyhow, going back to the original question, um, the mouse sequence will trigger inflammation and can actually trigger an, uh, a tolerance or an inactivation over time or loss of activity of your molecule. So you humanize it, and, and that is point mutations, uh, where you take the mouse sequence out and you replace it with human sequence. But you can't do that completely, because sometimes if you put human sequence, human amino acids in there, that you will, uh, you will lose some of your binding affinity. And so uh, this drug uh, still has about 10% residual, 10% mouse sequence. That seems to be low enough that these problems we talked about are not very big. Moving on to pegaptinib. Pegaptinib acts like an antibody, but it's not an antibody. It's actually an aptamer. Aptamer is a contraction of two words. Apta means to fit. It's Latin. Mer is for meros or a specific region or space. It's the Greek. So it fits or it binds to a specific space. So the word actually describes well what it does. Uh, but it's, it's an oligonucleotide. 
So pegaptinum is actually a 28 merge. 28 nucleotides strung together have a specific 3D conformation and bind to VEGF with very, very high affinity. It's similar in its affinity to, uh, to antibodies. It's the first aptamer to be approved in man. And what's nice about it is, unlike antibodies, which have to be synthesized uh, in cells or in bacteria in gigantic $300 million fermentation plants, aptamers are chemically synthesized. You can chemically string together these nucleotides. And the world's supply, of, for instance, of pegaptinum is made in a room not much bigger than the office you and I are sitting in right now. And so they have some of the best features of small molecules in that um, cost of goods and the ability to manufacture is, is relatively low and easy, respectively. But they have the affinity and the specificity of antibodies. And they seem to be well tolerated. They don't trigger immune responses. Are there medications, too, that involve just the antigen-binding portion uh, of, an, of an antibody? You know, I, I may be getting into, into yeah. something that... No, there are, there are peptides mm-hmm. uh, that, that can be made, uh, that can be rationally designed. So this is the rational design of medications. And there's actually technologies now that are being developed where the peptide is studied and its binding site is studied. And from that, they can rationally design a small molecule. So it's a two-step process where you can get to a small molecule, meaning it's a molecule size of hundreds of Daltons as opposed to tens of thousands of Daltons in size like aptamers and antibodies. And yet you have the functionality, the specificity of these larger biological molecules. I mean, just to summarize, I, I just think this is an incredibly exciting time because we're at a stage, not just with vascular biology, but with other areas, neuroscience as well, where we're understanding at a molecular level, you know, the mechanisms of disease. And we also have available to us the models and more, more, more importantly, the, uh, the tools, the, uh, the drugs that will specifically block these molecules. So that pharmacotherapy is going to be the future, I think. And really at the cutting edge of that is you're seeing, you know, some of the drugs we just mentioned that got approved. It's really just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be a bunch more coming down the pike. And then the other big issue we're going to have to address in ophthalmology, at least with the back of the eye diseases, is how do we deliver these things? Because many of the diseases we're going to be able to treat, AMD and diabetic retinopathy, are chronic diseases. And we're treating with intravitreal injections, which work well, actually work much better than we thought. We're getting the drug where we need to get it, and we're doing it relatively safely. But we would like to get into prophylaxis. So we know people who've got high-risk dry EMD. We also can identify eyes that are progressing fairly rapidly with diabetic retinopathy that you want to treat at a very early stage and prevent the progression. The key there is going to be drug delivery. So I think the two the two fields that need to really move forward rapidly, and they are in tandem, are the development of these specific compounds and drugs and then the drug delivery at the same time so we can treat these chronic diseases. Tony, thank you very much. My pleasure, Josh. Thanks very much. Tony Adamus is co-founder and executive vice president of iTech Pharmaceuticals. Ask questions of Dr. Adamus or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646 8080231 in the United Kingdom dial 0207558 or Skype jyoungmd those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com be a part of the next podcast i'm josh young